Aloha, I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. Welcome to The Body Show. Each week we talk about health and fitness, but none of what we discuss replaces a visit to your own primary care provider. September is Prostate Cancer Awareness Month. And what sort of signs or symptoms might make someone concerned about their prostate? And if they are, what could they do about it? Well, today we're going to be hearing from Dr. David Chow. He is a urology specialist at Hawaii Pacific Health, and he is at Straub Medical Center. And are you also at Polymomi? Uh, sometimes, very rarely. Sometimes at Polymomi at as well. And at Pearl Ridge, okay, at the clinic there. And we also have Paul Mizui on the line. He is a representative of Us to Hawaii. It is the Prostate Cancer Coalition. And for the last couple of years, we've had members of Paul and his group come on and talk about some of their supportive environments by which they provide the type of information that sometimes men are reluctant to get about different medical conditions like prostate cancer and how some of the treatments can affect the rest of their health as well. So thank you to both of you for joining me today. Yeah, thank you, Dr. Kozak. Very much. Thank you, Dr. Kozak. Now let's talk about some basics. Dr. Chow, I'm going to put you in the hot seat. Yes. What's the prostate? What does it do? Why do men need it? And how old are they when it usually starts to give them some troubles? Sure. So the prostate is part of the reproductive organ in men. Um, it's typically we describe as a walnut-sized gland that's sitting underneath the bladder. So as imagine if you think the bladder is a balloon. So the bladder is going to um, eliminate the urine from it from where you blow up the balloon from. So there's a mouth and there's a tube coming out of it that's coming out through the penis. The prostate is an organ that's sitting underneath the bladder that surrounds the urethra, which is the tube that drains out the urine. So, um, And its normal function is to provide some um, nutrients for the sperm to swim and provide some enzymes to support um, sperm um, um, uh, functions. So, um, but as we get older, a lot of times the prostate starts to get bigger and bigger. Um, starting around the age of 40, 40 late, mid, late to, uh, to late 40s, the prostate starts to get bigger and bigger. So what happens with that now is actually now you have a clamp placed around the urethra. So a lot of men start to have trouble peeing as we get into our late 40s and early 50s and things like that. And that's a benign enlargement, so there's no cancer with that. So there's a benign enlargement where the prostate is growing bigger, but it has no potentials to invade to some other organs as opposed to prostate cancer, where you have cells that just continue to grow. It's going to invade into the blood vessels, lymphatic, and go to other parts of the body and potentially kill that person. So simple prostate enlargement could cause a lot of symptoms, but not necessarily dangerous. When you start talking about prostate cancer, Mm -hmm. now we have a different situation. So would the symptoms of prostate enlargement be similar to the symptoms of prostate cancer, or would they be totally different? No, so um, it's not exactly true that benign prostate enlargement would not lead to any health problems. I mean, it could lead to a point where the man can't pee completely. It could actually cause renal failure, a host of different type of problems. So um, benign is not benign. (laughs) Sometimes if you're not Benign is not benign. I like that. Benign means that there's no cancer. Yeah, so... But uh, when it comes down to um, cancer, then it can invade to other parts of the body and cause a lot of more problems. Now, the symptoms, sometimes they're pretty similar, but actually the prostate cancer and benign prostate enlargement typically arises from different parts of the prostate. So um, having symptoms of urinary problems may not necessarily be a sign of prostate cancer. And prostate cancer is hard you know, because sometimes there's just no symptoms until it's too late, meaning that you know the cancer has spread over the body. So not a really good way to base the diagnosis on the symptoms alone. So there have been a controversy in the last few years Mm -hmm. about doing prostate cancer screening. And part of that was using a PSA or a blood test Mm -hmm. to determine if there's any need to do further intervention and whether or not that test was specific enough 
to identify situations where cancer might be involved. Sure. What's the best way to screen for prostate cancer? Well, so going back a little bit on the PSA question, so up till the 1980s, late 1980s, we had no way of screening for prostate cancers. That relates to the question you just asked me about, you know, what kind of symptoms do men get? In the 80s and before that, men came in there dying from their prostate cancer, bone pain, you know, bones fractures, and they're dying from the cancer. So then the, then we discovered the enzyme, the PSA. So going back, yeah, that's one of the enzymes the prostate makes. You know, so it actually has a normal function in the semen, um, but it's released in little bits into the bloodstream. So we could do a blood test and test to see what the PSA is. You know, so, um, and starting in the late 80s, early 90s, we started using a lot of PSA testing to screen men for prostate cancer. Um, for, we happily did that for the next 20 years. And we, treat, we diagnose a lot of men with early-stage prostate cancer and treat a lot of men with prostate cancer. But the problem is actually you gave all these men the side effect of the treatment and not necessarily benefiting them. So the controversy comes in when um, they looked at a lot of the healthcare experts, including the U.S. Preventive Task Forces, they looked at the PSA around 2012, and they came out and said, don't ever do it. So, so how do you know if you have cancer if you don't do the PSA test? So that's really the only test we have. So, and that's actually that recommendation was based on some flawed studies um, to say that if they took two, group, two groups of men, one group got the screening, the other group didn't, they found out their death rate was about the same. Yeah, but it was a really flawed study, but then the whole recommendation came from that. So um, now we look back, we could say that, you know, during the, what we call the PSA era, when we're doing all these PSA screening and testing, we probably cut the prostate cancer death by one half, by 50%. You know, so, um, and they kind of looked at all these data again a couple of years ago. So 2018, they came up with a revision to say, okay, make it optional. You know, it's, a, it's now a shared decision making. And that's a very important buzzword in medicine nowadays. You know, it, it's always been a shared decision making, but they're putting emphasis on that to say, um, we have a test available to test for prostate cancer. Would you like to do it or not? <laughs> yeah, I'll be honest. When I ask some of my patients, you know, we have this test available. Would you like to do it? And they're like, it's just a blood test mm-hmm. added with my other blood tests. Yeah, sure. Why wouldn't I do it? And I'm like, because that's shared decision making. Yeah. But I kind of agree with you. If there's no other option, then it sounds like it might be a good test. But there may be some age ranges where it would be mm-hmm. appropriate to test it and maybe age ranges where it might not be. Yes. So what would those ages generally be? Well, I mean, if you look at the guidelines, I mean, the median age for people to get prostate cancer is probably 60, around 66. You know, so in um, the screening recommendation, you know, when we do a screening test, we got to make sure it's a good test, yeah, meaning that, you know, we're going to pick up the cancer that we're, you know, if that person has the cancer and we run this test, we, we, it's got to test positive. Otherwise, it's not a good test. You know? The problem with the PSA test and prostate cancer screening, sometimes it's actually way too sensitive. Yeah, so. We're picking up a lot of what we call indolent cancer, which are cancers that may not ever hurt that person. I mean, there's a statistic out there. If you live to the age of 80, um, 80% of men may have prostate cancer that they just have, but it never caused any problems. So if you picked up all these men with the indolent cancer, um, you don't really know what to do with that <laughs> because now, now you have a person with that diagnosis. Cancer is a scary word. A lot of people are scared to death of having cancer. So when you hear the word cancer, they want treatment for that. Sure, yeah, so. they say get it out. It, yeah. Cancer sounds bad. I don't want that in there. Mm-hmm. So so you got to remove it, right? Yeah. No, not, not necessarily. So, not so going necessarily. back to the age range. So um, so the, the, the recommendations are over the place, but you know most places agree maybe age 45 or above. The American Urologic Association, the USPDF, actually says 55 to, um, uh, 55 to 69 and maybe no more screening after 70. But that has to be sheer decision-making. 
Sure. I mean, and there may be a reason that you want to test somebody who's older or maybe not test someone who's 95. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's different medical rationales for both of those. Mm -hmm. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. You're listening to The Body Show. When we come back, we're going to talk a little bit more about what happens when you do find out that you have prostate cancer and how do you get more information about what treatment options are out there and people who have had that firsthand experience. We'll hear from Paul Mizui from Us to Hawaii in just a few moments. Stay with us. Support for The Body Show comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk shows. Mahalo to contributor Hastings and Pleadwell, a communication company. Welcome back to The Body Show. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak, and I'm here in the studio with Dr. David Chow. He is a Hawaii Pacific Health urology specialist, and we have Paul Mizui on the line. He represents us to Hawaii and part of the Prostate Cancer Coalition. Now, Right before the break, we were talking about, you know, who should be tested for prostate cancer and what are the age groups and why was there a change in recommendations and why it's important to really discuss this with your doctor because there may be some decisions that you want to make and that shared process is something that is generally encouraged in the field of med- in medicine. Now, if you were to get diagnosed, Dr. Chow, that would often be because you've either had a, a blood test that requires some further evaluation and or a biopsy or some reason why you would do further testing. Mm -hmm. So from when you get an elevated PSA that you decide is high enough to require further testing, because not all high PSAs do, but when you get one that's high enough and you decide to do testing, what is that additional testing? So um, whenever somebody comes in to see me with the elevated PSA, can we do a physical exam to see if the prostate feels like it has a tumor inside? Um, and the first step I usually do is actually I'll test it again, you know, because over 50% of the men, you test the PSA again, it goes back to what's normal, and you don't have to do anything else. And let's say if we're um, seriously worried about if somebody has prostate cancer from the elevated PSA, family history is very, very important, certain you know, genes and kind of things like that, um, then we do the next step in the testing. So it's kind of, um, there are tests called molecular markers. I personally haven't found that to be useful, but there are tests that you could check for your DNA to do what's so-called a liquid biopsy. It'll tell you what are the chances you may have a bad type of prostate cancer. You know? um, and then um, usually um, nowadays, that it's, it's becoming more standard to run an MRI of the prostate you know, because the MRI are able to tell us, does the area, are there any areas of the prostate that looks like it's harboring cancer or not? And if the MRI is suspicious, we may go ahead and do a biopsy. And there are different ways of doing the biopsy, but the end result is actually the PSA test, the MRI, none of those tests are going to give you a diagnosis of prostate cancer unless you have some tissue diagnosis. So unfortunately, it's a process that people go through. I mean, people tolerate okay, but that's the harm in the PSA testing now, you know, because the biopsy carries certain rates of complications and problems, you know, meaning infection, um, um, maybe bleeding. Um, you could actually have a really serious consequence from the biopsy. So it certainly sounds like there are some definite reasons why we start off with shared decision-making, and then we have decisions along that whole process about repeating the test, checking to do the additional studies, MRI, and other types of testing to figure out what area to biopsy, Mm -hmm. you know, and how to make sure you're getting a biopsy at the right location. Because if you're going to go through that process, you want to make sure you've gotten the right amount of tissue to be able to identify that. And then once, if you do determine someone has prostate cancer, I bet they have a lot of questions on what the different options and treatments are. So let's hear from Paul Mizue. Paul, you're part of the Prostate Cancer Coalition and part of Us to Hawaii. This is a national group that tries to extend 
the ability of men to have a location where they can talk with other men who may have had this experience or had different situations arise in their health that led to a diagnosis of prostate cancer. And you lead up a support group at Polymomi, and Kuakini has another support group session that's available out there. Tell me about the goals of Us to Hawaii and what sort of services you provide to the people that you that you encounter. Well, thank you very much for the invitation to speak uh, on the program. Actually, I'm the uh, facilitator for Kuakini. And Gary I got Kim him backwards, is, okay. Gary Kim is the facilitator for Polymomi. We have two groups here on Oahu and one group on Hilo, Hawaii. But the two groups on Oahu are connected both socially as well as financially together. And we have about 200 members on paper, but maybe only about 25 who attend each meeting that we may have. Currently, we've been on Zoom sessions since about July of last year because of COVID. But the purpose of our organization is basically to share information among, uh, among the fellow patients, experiences, and possibly insights on their own care that they may receive, both here as well as on the mainland, and possibly share guidances that we may provide concerning their condition. And again, we're not uh, healthcare professionals, but uh, we have, through our long experience, uh, had various treatments that have had either good or bad experiences with those treatments. In fact, I myself had uh, four different treatments stemming from uh, 2008. So I'm a long-term survivor, and I can speak to some of them. And uh, many of many other patients have uh, similar experiences that I have. So the purpose is to share information, basically, and to assure the patients that they're not alone in this uh, long journey. And the journey could be uh, very long and very uh, uh, enlightening as far as their own condition. Because we believe strongly that the best advocate for the his, his care is the patient himself. Because if he doesn't know what condition he has, doesn't know how to ask the right questions and secure the right information, he's basically in the dark like, like he first started. So that's that's the essential purpose of the organization, and we would like to have more patients share with us. We do have a website that's available to anyone, and it's www.hawaii.com prostatecancer.org, So anybody can go to that website, see what's up as far as our meeting is concerned, and uh, we have other helpful links to uh, patients who may have similar informational needs. Well, and it sounds like the idea is something that I've always advocated for. Some of the best people to explain what a treatment is like is someone who's gone through it, and I think, you know, for me to to try and explain what it might be like to have a prostate biopsy. Well, I have to tell you, I've never had a prostate biopsy, so and I don't think I ever will. But, you know, it's it's often difficult to, to have men want to share and open up about these experiences. But, boy, if you get folks who have had that, that one-on-one personal conversation I find to be invaluable, that when you have an experience that you can share with someone about, you know, simple stuff. I mean, Dr. Chow, sometimes I think... You know, if a patient asks me, am I going to feel nauseous or am I going to want to eat after I do something? You know, if I have a biopsy or if, you know, is it going to be okay? Is it going to hurt when I go to the bathroom? I don't know these things, you know. And so patients may ask and they may want to, they may not even know that they need to ask. So to have such an interesting supportive group that allows not just the patient but also their loved ones to join in really, to me, makes a lot of sense. And I wish... We had more of that in a variety of different venues. Now, you mentioned, Paul, that you're on Zoom, 
And boy, that's been something technologically I've had to learn as well. Do you find that Zoom allows people to participate even at a greater rate just because of the ease of joining? Or if they want to not be there with their camera on, they could turn it off. They could just be there using the audio. How has Zoom changed some of these meetings that you've had? I think Zoom has been beneficial to all of us in terms of both the leader leadership uh, and the presentations that we may have because it allows patients or participants to chime in at any time, whereas, whereas before in formal meetings, uh, it's like one person would speak and that's it, you know, whereas then in our Zoom meetings, it allows multiple people to participate, of course, not at the same time, but have their turn in, in saying the piece. I think that's, that's beneficial for that sense. It, all, it also is, uh, is good in the sense that we don't have to travel to the site of the meeting. You know, most of the patients are over 60 years old and getting to and fro at uh, 7 o'clock at night could be a little hazardous. So I think it, it's good from that standpoint also. You're a Zoomophile. Is that even a word? <laughs> Zoomophile. <laughs> You're a Zoomophile. You love Zoom. I agree with you. I think it's really transformed things. And, and I think it's been wonderful that you've been able to change that in-person meeting to something that extends even beyond, you know, Kuakini and Palimomi. There may right. be some folks, Big Island, Kauai, Maui, anybody can join in these groups. Fact, we had a to chime in from Guam. Wow. And it was 3 o'clock in the afternoon over there. So That's pretty amazing. So it's allowed even to have that international focus, yes. you know, outside of Hawaii, the state, but looking at other countries and looking at other places as sure. well. Fantastic. All right, I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. You're listening to The Body Show. And when we come back, we're going to talk some more about prostate cancer. What are the treatments available and what are some of the things that Paul's group discusses at his sessions? There's different treatments for different conditions. And what does the term active surveillance mean? We'll be right back. Stay with us. Support for The Body Show comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk shows. Mahalo to contributors, Bavarian motor experts, and Chaminade University. Welcome back to The Body Show. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak, and today we're talking about prostate cancer. September is Prostate Cancer Awareness Month, and right before the break, we were hearing from Paul Mizue. He is the head lead of the Kuikini Us to Hawaii Support a group, I hate to call it just a support group because it's so much more, of the Prostate Cancer Coalition. And he helps to encourage men to share their story and share their experiences and what they've learned through their journey of being diagnosed with and treating prostate cancer. Now, we've also talked, Dr. Chow, about the way you diagnose it. So you mentioned that in some cases, a biopsy is going to be needed. A tissue might be necessary for diagnosis to determine if there's something that needs to be done. But not every biopsy is going to lead to cancer, or that might lead to precancer, or like you mentioned earlier, indolent cancer, cancer that's not known to grow quickly. And there used to be a term, watchful waiting, which always seems so passive, like we're waiting around. But now there's a new term, active surveillance. And really that incorporates what was being done for those individuals much better than anything else. Mm -hmm. What's active surveillance and who should have it? 
So um, whenever somebody's diagnosed with prostate cancer, um, we actually now try to risk stratify them to see how risky is this cancer. So we had a system called a Gleason system, which is out of 10. So if you had, you know, that the Gleason scores go from 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, basically. So, um, but whenever somebody hears, like, we have a 6 out of 10 cancer, that's pretty scary. <laughs> 6 out of 10, that's not good. So um, we've been stratifying the change in the terminology to group 1, 2, 3, 4, 5. So... Oftentimes, so um, that, that and that's based that that's a risk um, stratification system based on um, what's the Gleason score. So if you have a low Gleason, which is a six, you know, and it has to do with how much volume we find on the cancer in the biopsy. The implication there is actually if you have a big prostate, you take fifteen biopsies, you find one area of cancer. That may not be as serious if you found fifteen cancers out of fifteen. So, um, so you have the low grade and the very low grade, uh, low risk cancers. Yeah, you know, so. Those guys, we could um, we we found out that we could watch those guys safely because a Gleason six prostate cancer group one it almost has no um, 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 uh, invasion potential, so it's very likely they're going to invade and, and metastasize to other parts of the body. So for that group of people, and then the, the next group is actually the group two. So certain group two patients we do recommend to watch as well, but you watch that with more caution because they're at higher risk for having metastatic cancer um, down the line. Um, and the active surveillance. Um, Protocol, there, there's a lot of um, variations to that, so there's not a standard in that right now, but generally agreed that, you know, we usually want to do a confirmatory biopsy and maybe within a year, so, because how do you know you really have a Gleason 6? Maybe they misread the pathology. So you got to do that. Yeah, we follow the PSA numbers typically every six months to see where the PSA is going, because if the PSA is going up and up, I mean, that's no good. So. Um, and sometimes we, we're mixing that with MRI. The role of the MRI for surveillance has not really been well-defined, but, you know, we are throwing that in there. So sometimes we'll do an MRI. Some people are very resistant to another biopsy, and we run into all kinds of scenarios there. So, but that's active surveillance. We're just watching it to see if the cancer is going to grow and go to some other parts of the body. But meanwhile, we know that they're low risk, and that's why we're watching it. But then there's no guarantees. We still have to watch those guys. So that would be the active surveillance group. Now, what about the active treatment group? What are some of the current treatment options that are out there? Yes. Oh, so going back a bit, I mean, you got to have a localized disease. A localized meaning that it's still inside the prostate. It's not an advanced disease that is growing outside because these are all local treatment options. So when it comes down to local treatment options, yeah, the very standard thing we do in Hawaii is basically we could do robotic prostatectomy. We're taking out the prostate, so we're trying to remove the entire prostate and the cancer within it, you know. Um, the other standard thing we have available in Hawaii would be radiation therapy. There's There are different forms of radiation therapy. You could put seeds inside. You could do external beam. You could hit the prostate from outside. So they're getting a lot better with this kind of stuff because that's you know it's all about the side effect when you talk about the treatment options. Um, on the mainland, yeah, they you know these are not a standard. And there's proton beam, which is you know to me that's just that different from a radiation delivery device. You know. Now, non-standard treatment, a lot of people are doing uh, ablative therapy yeah, where they can use ultrasound laser energy to try to just hit the area of the prostate that's got the cancer inside because why, why would you treat the whole prostate if you have cancer in one spot? You know, so those are non-standard. Yeah? Um, those devices are not FDA approved to treat cancer, although they've been approved to treat um, uh, the prostate tissue. You know, so. Um, the little bit of a problem with that would be that, um, you know, sometimes cancer is multifactorial, meaning that just because you found cancer in one spot doesn't mean you don't have cancer in another spot. But that may be a very reasonable option to choose if, you know, if we are pretty sure that there's only one spot of cancer, we can ablate that instead of treating the whole prostate. Because, it, again, it goes back to the, the, the side effect of the treatment. If you treat the whole prostate, you are going to have side effects. And that's the harm that you get from prostate cancer treatment. 
So when we talk about doing the localized treatment, you mentioned take it out, mm-hmm. do localized radiation, and then the potential future implications of doing ablative therapy or localized treatment just of that one particular yeah. area if the science starts to support mm-hmm. that. What if it's already spread? What happens then? Well, I mean, if the cancer is already spread and we don't think it's curable, um, there, there are scenarios where there, if it's minimally spread, we actually would treat that with radiation still. Um, but, you know, we, we probably would not do surgery for cancer. That's, you know, the cat's out of the bag. You can't stuff it back into treat it now. You know, so it becomes mostly systemic therapy. What we mean by systemic therapy is we treat the whole body because there might be small focus of cancer all over the body. So the main backbone of prostate cancer treatment is going to be um, hormone, what, what people used to refer to hormonal therapy or androgen deprivation therapy because all prostate tissue and prostate cancer tissue responds very well to um, testosterone. It grows when you have testosterone. So when it's exposed to testosterone, it'll grow very fast. But if you take away its food, testosterone, um, it may even die off and regress. It doesn't last forever, but that's what we would think about doing. So it sounds to me like with the localized treatment, there may be some surgical complications, or Mm -hmm. not even complications, but side effects. And then with... The if it's spread, the type of hormonal deprivation therapy could also have different side effects Definitely. and potential implications of what someone might experience. With when you look at this situation for where we're treating it right now, do you see any change in how we might treat prostate cancer in the next couple of years? I mean, I realize I'm trying to make you a psychic or mm-hmm. or try and pick your brain on where you see the field going. But I'm wondering, given our current way to treat it, the diagnosis that we've improved, the active surveillance, the use of MRI, targeted biopsies so you really can get to the right area Mm -hmm. and figure out whether or not you need to treat somebody, where do you think the treatment is going to go in the next couple of years, given where we've come from in the last few years? Yeah, so um, in terms of treatment, um, there's, you know, the focal ablations that we talked about. Those might, you know, come into use more and more. I forget I mentioned cryotherapy. You could freeze the prostate or destroy it with some kind of energy, uh, the cancer. Um, they are looking into, you know, so so the medication we use to treat advanced prostate cancer, the hormone therapy medications as such, should we use that before the surgery or the radiation? So those are in trials, yeah, because for a lot of cancers, if you do the systemic therapy up front, um, you may be able to downstage the cancer before you get to it, and therefore there's a higher cure rate. We don't have any evidence of that yet, but that's kind that's of where you know, we're what headed. we're looking okay. at. Um, there's different kind of energy treatments nowadays. So, you know, and then even for advanced prostate cancer, I mean, it's, there's been an explosion of number of medications we have for them in the past probably five years or so. It's almost like every time I turn around, there's a new medication out there. You know? But it's still all androgen based um, treatment, yeah, and then there's some chemotherapy available. There are some newer immunotherapy that's available, um, and um, you know, some, uh, and then some newer in, um, treatment based on you know the genes and the patient. It's becoming more individualized, yeah. But that's more for advanced cancer, you know, So, um, but for the localized therapy, I mean, you know, it's it's kind of like hitting a moving target because the technology is always getting better. So you know that that what they were doing for radiation five years ago, they're probably not doing that anymore. Same thing for the surgery. There's always new surgical techniques, but the surgical principles remain the same. We're trying to take out the prostate without causing too much harm. That's where the robotics have come in. Yes. It's one of the few areas where we've seen that robotic surgery has provided a significant advantage Mm. with urologic procedures and with some gynecologic procedures because it allows you to function in such a small localized area, but to do so with 
you know, the ability to use robotic abilities. I mean, you, you use the robot, yes. you know. I mean, to me, I, I, this, there's a reason I'm not a surgeon because I'd be all thumbs. But with a robot, you can be all thumbs, but the robot isn't, and they can actually take care of the treatment and provide much less recovery time and yes. decrease the side effects, et cetera. So, well, it certainly sounds like there's a lot in the future potential moving in the direction of individualized treatment for prostate cancer, but also maybe individualized diagnosis, like you mentioned at the beginning, shared decision-making and what are some of the new diagnostic tools so that we can figure out who needs the treatment and who would be best positioned to benefit from that. Yes. The key thing is to figure out the one guy that's got the bad cancer we need to treat, but not treat the guy who had, who doesn't have the bad cancer. All right. Well, that's the holy grail of prostate cancer yes. treatment. All right. I want to thank both Paul Mizue from the Us Two Hawaii group, the Prostate Cancer Coalition, and all the hard work that he does trying to help educate folks about the experience he's had and share what he's been through to help them go and decide how they can manage their diagnosis as well. And also, Dr. David Chow from Hawaii Pacific Health Urology Specialist, practicing at both the Pearl Ridge Clinic and also in downtown Honolulu. Thanks to both of you for sharing your expertise with us today on The Body Show. If you'd like to hear the show again, you can click on hawaiipublicradio.org. Follow the links. You can also find us on the HPR app. Our engineer is David Chong. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. We'll see you next week when we talk more about health topics right here on The Body Show. We'll see you then. <laughs> 